Welcome. You are listening to me, Henrik. I have started a podcast called The Honest Podcast that tells people how to live their lives based on my innate common sense and decades of doing the wrong thing twice. Together with a constantly changing panel of friends and other self-proclaimed experts, The Honest Podcast discusses interesting topics every month with brutal honesty and a lot of sarcasm. I hope you have fun listening to the podcast, maybe even get inspired, but I'll be very sad if you actually learn something. Enjoy. Today's episode is about a topic that's close to my heart, mind, and soul. We're going to talk about psychedelics. Entire podcast are made just on this topic, so there's no chance we'll get to cover everything in the short time we have today. So see it as an appetizer, as I have a feeling this topic will return again and again to this podcast. Let's start out by defining what psychedelics are. So psychedelics, also known as hallucinogens, are a class of psychoactive substances that produce changes in perception, mood, and cognitive processes. The word itself means mind manifesting and comes from ancient Greece. Psychedelics include a wide range of different plants and substances, but the most well-known are magic mushrooms, LSD or acid, mescaline, also found in San Pedro and peyote cacti, various forms of DMT, also found in plants, animals, even in ourselves. And because many decades of misinformation, political agendas and simple ignorance, all psychedelics are today perceived as illegal drugs, more or less, with no health benefits by the general public and law enforcement. This, in my opinion, couldn't be further from the truth, and in this episode I'm going to try to explain to you why that is. But this is a huge task, and I cannot do it alone, and therefore I have invited two of my fellow experienced psychonauts to the podcast. First of all, welcome to you, Simon Stark. You are an Austrian living in Portugal, but always with one foot in the psychedelic world. We share similar stories as both our lives took a drastic change after visiting Peru back in 2016. Since then, we have shared dozens of journeys covering almost the entire palette of substances known to man in our pursuit of mind expansion and exploration. Today, you are not only well-traveled in that field, but also somewhat of a philosopher, and you call yourself a probabilitarian which we will get back to, and why all these things these things might be connected. And also welcome to you, David Bernardo, and thanks for coming on the show today. So David is Portuguese, uh, but splits his time between Portugal and Mexico. And in his previous life, David was a management consultant for Roland Berger, and later changed and started his own company, Elites Adventures, that is a transformation catalyst, both for companies, but also for people, that believes that better people makes better companies, and in general, also makes a better world. David, you're also a professor in digital transformation or strategy and transformation. So welcome, guys, to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure Amazing. to be here. <laughs> Great. Simon, could you talk a little bit about how psychedelics has impacted your life? Any good stories to share with the world? <laughs> a lot of good, but I would like to start at the beginning. In my previous life, I grew up very conservatively, partially in, in Austria. And I grew up with the belief that if I take psychedelics, I will get stuck. I will not come back, go crazy, lose my mind, because that's what the people around me told me. And I was never in a circle of friends where psychedelics were common. I did smoke weed for many years, but haven't tried anything else, nothing beyond weed. 
I think I tried cocaine a handful of times, but I knew that's not my thing, so I was not interested. Did your parents also tell you that it was a gateway to heroin and... Of course. ...shooting yourself in the arm? Yes, yeah, yeah. it's basically, when you try psychedelics once, it's basically the end of the life that we know. Yeah. And in a way, they were right. And I remember when I first started to get curious about psychedelics, I was still living a very conservative life in Asia, working in finances, had nothing to do with psychedelics and no contact to it at all. But I remember it was actually Sam Harris who sparked some because I was listening to him a lot back then and in terms about meditation, spirituality, religion. And I remember there was in one talk that he gave, I think it was a letter to his daughter, where he also mentioned psychedelics in a very positive way and talked about his experiences with psychedelics. And I remember at first I was absolutely struck because I thought, wow, there is someone who is definitely intelligent, who is functioning in real life and someone who talks that positively about psychedelics. Then I started to research and what really made me do was TED Talk by Graham Hancock, where he talks about psychedelics compared to socially accepted drugs like alcohol, nicotine. And then from there, I started to go to Terence McKenna, which was one of my first teachers in psychedelics. And still from that start, it took about one and a half years before I actually really tried it. And what was uh, the setting? It was not you alone in the apartment, I assume. <laughs> it was probably at a festival under the peer pressure of uh, <laughs> 10 other people. No, what it took for me was a traumatic experience, actually. It was a divorce, which was very painful. And the first journey I did was directly to Peru because it was on my mind for a long time. But in the life I was living before, something like that was basically unthinkable. So I always put it aside. But the moment I broke out of that, or in my case, I was broken out of that, I knew the calling was such a strong and intense one. I also remember, I am usually a person, if I book an apartment on Airbnb, I will research that for two hours to find the best spot. When I was looking for retreats, I remember I googled Peru. I knew it has to be ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. And the first retreat that popped up, I looked at the picture of the shaman. And now it becomes weird, but I had a dream the night before where I have seen that face and I have booked my spot within five minutes so that it was a very intense calling. So you decided that the first psychedelic you were going to try was going to be ayahuasca in Peru or had you had experiences with other psychedelics before that? Nothing. I okay. haven't even tried a pill or a mushroom, okay. not a crumble of an MDMA. I was an absolute virgin. Simon says ayahuasca is referring to the vine, which is widespread all over Amazon, Peru, Colombia, Brazil, but mixed together with chacruna, which contains the DMT, which is another plant. Then you can make a tea, and that tea is then also referred to as ayahuasca, and that you drink. Even though calling it a tea, I would say it's a stretch, I would more say 
It's probably something mixed between ashtray and fill it with water, and then you mix it with some licorice and some other gooey stuff, and then that's your tea. But yeah, that's what they brew down there. And with the intention that ayahuasca would be the first one, well, it turned out differently because once I arrived in Peru, there was the possibility to join for San Pedro ceremony at Machu Picchu, which I did. That was actually my first experience with psychedelics. And two days later, to the ayahuasca in the jungle, close from Iquitos. So going to Iquitos, which is a wild city, as we know. <laughs> the Wild West. <laughs> is the Wild West. So from Iquitos, then still two hours with a boat into the Amazon and into the jungle. And there was my first ayahuasca retreat. But the San Pedro ceremony was incredibly beautiful. Incredibly beautiful. And throughout my journey, there are some memories from experiences that are so vivid. It feels like I have experienced it yesterday. I still remember it was like someone ripped my heart open and puked rainbows inside because it was a love that I did not know or haven't experienced like that before because it was not the love for another human being, but for everything, for appreciation for everything around me. I felt love for every leaf of grass, for every water drop. We were having a ceremony next to the river and I was just in awe with nature, with creation and with the feelings I had. I had a very positive, so there was no nausea at all. What I had was a lot of muscle shaking mm. and muscle cramps that were basically going on for 24 hours. But and that that's typically a sign that the medicine is going through your body and it's actually working or it's doing its job. That exactly, because there are different forms of purging, of releasing. Yeah. And very often people think of throwing up as being the way of purging, but there are many more ways. The Western world is getting sick, but in Peru and in the countries where they actually have practiced with this medicine for years is getting, getting well because you're actually purging what you don't need anymore and what the body doesn't want anymore so it's actually getting well not getting sick when you throw up there's actually speaking with this shaman Peru he was saying he disagreed of people calling it ayahuasca first because it's not only ayahuasca like you mentioned it's uh, with the shakruna as well and the DMT is actually in the shakruna but he was saying that this is a very new thing and what people call it is la purga so the purge, you're going to purge whatever you have to purge it. I don't like to call it ayahuasca because it's La Purga. That's how we traditionally call it. And it has many other names, I think. But the active ingredient in it is DMT. Yep. So in that sense, it's the same. But yeah, DMT is a natural substance. You find it in Shakruna, but many other plants too. And even ourselves. So our own body produces DMT in the lungs. So when you, for example, do breath works where you hyperventilate or you breathe very quickly, then you're also increasing the DMT that's going into your brain. And that's why breathwork can give you somewhat of a DMT experience. And it also might be the reason why the day that we all die, you have that tunnel vision or same out-of-body experience because the lungs are releasing huge amounts of DMT. Yeah, holotropic breathwork was actually invented because of that, right? It was prohibited to test altered states. All right, Simon, you arrived in the jungle and you had a fantastic San Pedro mescaline experience, which typically also is a heart opening medicine. And I believe also the indigenous people who were using it in Peru had this theory that animals have a frequency that's very low and humans have a frequency that's very high. And when we as humans take 
San Pedro, then our frequency is lower to the same frequency as the animals. And that's why you will have experiences as if you can talk to the ants or you can understand the birds, or at least you feel a lot more connected to the nature around you. So that was their belief, but that is actually also what you are likely to experience when you are eating San Pedro cactus. Well, or... I think then I had an overdose because I was talking with stones for six hours. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what's a vibration of stones. Well, but, you know, that's even lower. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I think one of the things you mentioned that I find important, there are two concepts when we're talking about the vocabulary doesn't help us. So one of them is the concept of love. When people speak about love, they are speaking a lot about passion or like, I mean, love with someone. And when you're talking about these experiences, they are much more about the universal love. Also, like a lot of the love experiences, they are often codependencies. They are often come from insecurities and people confuse love and relationships. Mm -hmm. I'm in a relationship, therefore I have love. No, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. And that starts with self-love. And I think the big experience here is how you connect yourself for self-love and universal love. I think another big confusion with expressions when you go into this is masculine and feminine energy, confusing it with man and woman. So I think they, our society, those two types of concepts the vocabulary doesn't help and there's mm -hmm. a lot of misunderstanding about it because mm. a lot of people say no i have love what you mean i have a wife therefore i know love and not the same thing we just call it the same word no i totally agree and also with the masculine feminine energy it's not he or she you have masculine and feminine energy within you and yep. it's the flow of those energies within you that can be blocked And it's disconnected from sexual orientation, which is people are like, a man has more female energy, therefore he's gay or a woman. It's mm. very disconnected. And that I find it's often like a misconception and that doesn't allow for people to be more in touch with who they are. And I also want to talk about self-love at some point. Mm -hmm. because <laughs> Don't get me started on that. But, uh, <laughs> but before that, I actually wanted to jump back to you, Simon, because you were then on your way into the jungle to Ikitas. And what happened? What did you experience? For my first ceremony, and that is also interesting because that's where expectations come in. Because as I said before, I did a lot of research before going and I came with certain expectations, nothing less than my life would be changed afterwards. I remember the first ceremony, I drank a big cup and nothing happened. I was sitting in the temple and feeling my anger coming up, my dissatisfaction with the situation because I thought, okay, I'm traveling around the world. I'm sitting in the jungle. I'm getting eaten by mosquitoes. I'm hearing leopards out there and nothing happens. Second ceremony, similar. I had two cups this time and I slept like a baby. I was told I snored the whole ceremony through. Blissful sleep though. It felt like being held by a mother but nothing happened. Then for the third one, I think uh, with the experience of the first two, I dropped my expectations. And of course, boom, I got shot out into the universe and had probably one of the most incredible trips until today, where I had something what I would call an ego death, where you literally experience your death. And what I always try to explain to people is that the places you go on these substances, they feel absolutely real. I was not in a state where I knew, okay, I took something and uh, that is why I'm having visuals. That is far beyond that. Where I went felt realer than real and so felt my death. 
which was, in my case, being buried alive at the Dia dos Muertes in Mexico. But I went through that and it was an incredible experience which had multiple effects. One, it shattered the picture I had of the world and of what is possible because it showed me that there is much, much more. We talked before about overloaded words like love. God and spirituality is another one where we all have our personal relation to that word. So this was an experience that definitely changed me. One thing I also remember was that at a point I knew I cannot live without or being separated from nature into to an extent as I was when I lived in Asia. Nature was very refilling and recharging and I knew I want to have that more in my life. So that sounds both extremely terrifying but also extremely rewarding. And that is probably also what I would define ayahuasca with those two words, because it can be the scariest experience in your life. And it also was that for me. And I think that experience of being convinced that now you have died, right? Being convinced now that how terrifying it is to, in your mind, believe, oh, I overdid it this time. Now I'm dead. I really fucked up. I'm saying goodbye to my family, to all my loved ones. Right? That was it for me. And that process in the first two, three hours, which can take 10 hours, of fighting for survival and holding on to your pocket. Typically you get a pocket where you can perch or, or vomit into, and you're basically throwing up because you're so much in distress that your entire body, physically and psychologically, doesn't know what to do. So every cell in your body is in high alert and fighting what is going on. And that battle you will eventually lose, right? <laughs> you just don't know it. That you surrender. So the exercise and the key maybe here is that the faster you can let go, right? The faster you can surrender to the experience where you can then completely accept whatever is happening to you and where you then also can receive all the messages that are coming to you and where you may have intentions before going into a ceremony, you can then start focusing on them. And the beauty of that is that if you go in with intentions, it might also be you think about something completely different. You might have intentions of you want to think about this and then you go in and then it's going to be something completely different that pops up. But ayahuasca has some way of making things extremely clear. And that's very difficult in our normal lives because we have an inner voice, a monkey voice that's constantly challenging and putting down on everything we do, right? All the time. I often hear the metaphor that you're walking up to the top of a mountain and then from the top of the mountain, everything is clear. Once you then, the symbol is over, you come back from that mountain, then you're down on the ground again, but you can never unsee what we saw from the top of the mountain. So all of a sudden your perspective completely changes, right? Because a lot of the things that you may in your life have done that is not serving you very well, that's not very good to you, to your family, to everyone around you, to the world, becomes very clear. And you start to question, and, oh, is, is that a way for me to live? Is that a good way? And when you, are, when you gain that perspective, I think that's also the first step in actually being empowered to change it. Because if you're always in it, you don't necessarily challenge yourself or think, you know, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's, I should be doing it differently. But when you see it very clearly, then you have that power coming out of a ceremony to actually change your life. 
And I think you mentioned ego death because very much it's your ego that often drives you to to do certain things, right? It's most people want to make money, they want to be successful, they want to be recognized, they want all these things, and that's just the ego sitting in the front seat, driving, and your soul might be in the back seat. Whatever it takes, you need to climb that uh, mountain of success, uh, and that might serve you very well. But at some point, then you realize, oh, that might not have been the answer. And something like plant and plant medicines can accelerate that realization and make you question the way you live your life and then also give you the clarity to perhaps realize how it is you want to live your life and be more aligned with the spirit or the soul of yourself. And I remember from my own first ayahuasca ceremony also in Peru, that was, again, me on a crusade trying to find many different substances and figure out what worked for me. And when I got to Peru, I also had no idea what I was getting into. And I had somewhat similar experience of an ego death completely annihilated. And it was probably the most terrifying experience in my life. It still is today, I would say. Maybe not near death in terms of a physical near death, but near death psychologically for sure. And coming out of it as a new person. Like I think impact that that have had on my life, exactly because all of a sudden you get a new perspective has been profound. And I've made many changes to my life since then. And I hear it again and again from other people describing the same experience. So I'm convinced that this works. This is a tool that can help you make changes, that can help you live a more aligned life with who you are, right? Where you get to, for some people, for example, in my case, meet your soul for the first time to actually see that there's a bright light all the way deep inside of you that's the soul of Henrik and it's not just an ego mind that is driving everything and coming back to what you said earlier that perhaps is the core so not the love that the mind might have for one person or another person or nature but love as in the energy that is that bright light inside of you that loves everything unconditional love for everything because that there is nothing else but love then that's all the conditioning we then put on it and filters and restrictions and then it all of a sudden it can't love anything but the light itself can only love and love everything but that's what ayahuasca does it shatters belief systems and it shows you that there is much more than you thought is possible that's mm. the doors of perception yeah. that are kicked in and that was one thing that happened after my experience in peru was first i realized that i've been lied to all of my life and uh, psychedelics are not the devil and after that i set out to explore all of them ideally from the places where they are from, ideally with indigenous. And that was my journey for the next year after to get to know the different substances and see the effects that it has on me. Mm. Yeah, another cool metaphor, because I'm a skier, I love to ski. And I think it was Michael Pollack in his book, How to Change Your Mind, explained it as you have your mountain and you would see all the tracks on the mountain where you've been skiing or other people have been skiing. And then all of a sudden, coming out of a ceremony, a new dump of snow has landed on this mountain and all the tracks are gone. They're fresh. New powder and you can go in any direction. So I can tell you a little bit about uh, my experience, which is very different from you guys. Um, I tried. I didn't even know what psychedelics were. Maybe I was like... 1718. We're talking about Portugal in the 90s. We grew up in a culture that it was becoming a little bit more 
available. Yeah. But the culture here, because there was a massive opioid crisis yeah. with heroin and everything, and that a lot of families were destroyed. You had a lot of kids from like nice families that were basically just robbing the families, families going bankrupt, sleeping on the streets, dying. Then you had the AIDS crisis, all these things, and everything was put in the same bag. So the way everyone grew up, I think, and a lot like you see... The, even the video games had say no to drugs, all these things, everything came into a, a package. Mm. It's drugs. Alcohol was widely accepted as it still is. Mm. Alcohol was praised as it, it's not as much, but I think like we're seeing a couple of trends, like we saw alcohol, beer, everything was amazing. That was very much a, a reality. And it was funny because we went with this Brazilian guy to Amsterdam and we thought, oh, maybe he wants to try a joint or something. He was like, oh no, I just want to come to Amsterdam and do whatever. But the funny thing was, I think at the time we tried maybe like smoking some weed. We were like 18. It was with my best friend. Another of my best friends was living there. And then one day we did mushrooms. We bought them at this store. Uh, I remember by the flower market and we had no idea. And the thing was like not working. So we decided to eat more and it's still not working. Nobody knew that it took some time for that to kick in. To kick in. Yeah. And we were like tripping. And I remember going, we were all over. I remember being inside the popcorn machine, just going through the popcorn then we were trying all these different stuff, like in terms of experience. We went to a live sex show at the Red Light District. And I remember the actress was there. Yeah. And she, <laughs> and she turns to us and like her tongue comes in the direction of me and I ran uh, away from it. It was a fun experience. It was an interesting experience. Nothing I would call it transformational, more yeah. like a good antidote. Well, that was, you know. That was the first time. And honestly, it's, nobody even spoke about it. Mm. And it was legal there. And we were like trying it. And it was just really funny. And we still laugh about it when we speak about it. But yeah, that was the experience. And I never really did many things. Like even alcohol, to be honest, I enjoy the feeling tipsy but the flavor and the yeah. drinking it it's so. like the tipsy and being a little more relaxed over a glass of wine and i can mm. enjoy a glass of wine every once in a while but yeah but there's a culture of how much you can drink how much it's great it's like marketing wise it's amazing because it's have it's a massive industry so it makes all the sense for people to be consuming they are fostering an industry but yeah never made much sense but in my 20s yeah i was living in spain i was living in italy portugal in the us studying alcohol culture is very predominant all over but i never really and drugs like in terms of weed didn't make me feel good cocaine was not for me i think probably even i never tried because of everything you heard about it and the education we had around it but spirituality energy all these things, they were very present with me from a young age. I had a big accident in Vietnam as well. Doctors couldn't do anything. I go to a guy, he puts his hands on top of my leg. And basically the next day I go to the doctor again, the doctors couldn't believe it. I had no more infection after almost losing my leg within 24 hours. So these things were very present mm. already. But I was then as like startups, MBA, like party, like living in Miami, working in music, all these things. So ego builds up and I think you leave it on the side. Then I had to start these things. And I was hanging out with a lot of friends that I, some I'm still close to. And actually, it's funny because they all did this journey, like really party people that then they went all very healthy and everything. And they went on ayahuasca and they go, oh, this is amazing and life changing. And my feeling was, OK, it wasn't enough. All the paraphernalia and all the array of drugs you had. Now you had to find another drug. 
No, David, you should do. I was like, yeah, like I should do all the other things you guys do, but it's like that I don't. Maybe a year later, two years later, so many people talk. I decided to go and do the experiment. And in I, Peru, or where did you go? In Mexico. In Mexico. Yeah, I arrived there. I was annoyed. Where am I? It's like who are these like people? Uh, hippies. Was it a calling for you or were you curious FOMO. or FOMO? <laughs> no, it wasn't yeah. really FOMO because we are talking about nine, ten years ago. Mm. It wasn't really FOMO. It wasn't really, I don't know, like it was never, I didn't see the shaman the night uh. before on my dreams or I don't have any uh. cool stories like that. And like, okay, there is, several people told me about it. I'm curious uh. and let's go and, and check it out. And nothing. I thought I had no. I was like, I have no traumas. <laughs> Why should I take psychedelics? Uh, yeah, I'm perfectly like, fine. I'm perfectly fine. It's my life is good. It's hey, yeah. I'm rebuilding my life. But no. yeah, so it's the only thing. My first intention was that actually came to me over and over again through the years, and I think it's a great intention. It was just I want to laugh more, mm. and uh, yeah, really? and I did. And people were throwing up. And people were like crying. And I was laughing. I was even embarrassed during the ceremony because I was like, hey, maybe I should be crying with everyone else. But it's, I was laughing and I was having a good time. Maybe it was the kid who had not been allowed to laugh for a very long time. And then yeah. all of a sudden you could let it go, right? Yeah. And it's basically still my, if people are like, what's your intention? I just want to laugh more. When you mm. laugh, everything is fine. Your body reacts well, like everything is fine. So that's great. And that was a little bit like my first experience. So it was a very beautiful experience. I connected with that feeling of oneness. I connected with that feeling of universal love and I connected with all those things. I didn't understand I had to work on things. It was like the ego dissolution and everything, not to the extent, the crazy extent. I understood things. I saw my family as people instead of only my parents and my grandparents and so on. And that experience was amazing. It was just on my third experience that had a twist around. I had a girlfriend at the time. I was like, my friends are having kids and they're having families and so what's this deal? Should I have a family? Should I have kids with her? Like all these questions. And I arrived there to don't worry about it because you're going to die in three months. And then I spent whatever the time it took for dying of cancer and going through all these things. And it was hell. Honestly, I think you were mentioning before what was it? The scariest. Of so you were basically seeing the end of your life. No, it's not seeing. It. You were living it after the ceremony, or Matt, I was living it during the ceremony. I saw my eyes. I was at my funeral. Uh, I went through this. Man, I was so desperate at a certain point. I wanted to call someone to just like take me out of here. I don't can't deal it. And something told me you have two chances. Either you go through it now. Until today, I don't know. I suspect it healed me. And I've seen those experiences that people think it's crazy, but I've seen that with my legs. So I do believe that your brain and actually your body can self-heal. Mm. If you look at it, like we do a cut, even like big cut and your body self-healed what was the worst thing on the dying part how the hell did life go on for other people without me here that was like the big ego trip since so i went through suffering i went through everything but that life went on and man i laughed and i had no idea i was like okay so but did you then in the experience or in the ceremony did you come to terms with I did your not. own death or I did, did you not. did you come out as like more confused I came than? out more confused okay. I'm like why the 
fuck did I come? I went to a Temascal the day after thinking, okay, now I'm going, this will help me relax. The whole thing comes back again. So I'm hit within 12 hours, twice. So when he told me like, this is going to happen in three months. And I thought, if it's going to happen in three months, either it's true and it happens. And then I don't want to speak about it to other people because I don't want for my last three months to be like this. Or it's not true and it won't happen. And there's no point speaking about it. Mm. So I maybe mentioned it to a few people, not more. And I went through three pretty intense months. And then after three intense months, actually during the night, it came to me. Someone laughing and said, hey, you wanted to laugh. Hey, you wanted to connect. Hey, there you go. Joke on you. (laughs) (laughs) Joke on you. There you go. I would say it was the hardest and probably one of the most transformational experiences of my life. Mm. And then after that, I will try with things, but I do believe this is part of a path. Oh, I remember the question I had for you is, and I've asked this a few years ago, I was at World Economic Forum in Davos, and there was a conference by MAPS, and the founder was there, and I asked him a question that I have for both of you as well. I have my own answer, which is, do you think this is just something that happens chemically inside your brain and you're imagining things and hallucinating or do you actually think it opens you into other experiences and other dimensions and energies? That's a big question. I'm not sure I can answer it. And also what's very difficult is that it's going to be a very personal answer because up until now it's almost impossible to put qualitative data or science on this and say yes it's all happening up in your brain maybe one day we will be able to actually map that out and say okay this is what's going on right these are the neurotransmitters that are shooting this is the part of the brain that's normally not active that then becomes active and this is a delay between these neurotransmitters and because of this delay you all of a sudden don't connect with your own thoughts in the same way as you usually do and therefore you you have this out of body experience right because you think there's someone else in that's thinking this uh, for you and then all these different theories and i used to say uh, also to simon that when we do dmt then it often becomes very visual and i always imagine that the visuals that i'm seeing the like the throbbing or the movement is actually a visualization of my own mind and thoughts that is moving through my own brain. But I have no way of proving that, knowing that it's an experience in my inside, in my head. But I think by now we have thousands and thousands of documented experiences. And I think there's definitely conclusions to be made from all these experiences. And you can say people independently from each other have these experiences and many times often the same experiences, right? Maybe oftentimes the same visuals. For example, in Peru, it's many times the underground with the snakes, it's the sky with the condors, the eagles, and it's the land with the pumas or the panthers. And those animals tend to compact again and again, and the snake being a sign of healing. And I think there's definitely something in the medicine that is creating this. We all have different upbringing, different experiences, And if we are to experience somewhat the same, then the only constant is the medicine. So in that sense, there must be something in the medicine that gives us these messages or that communicates to us in that way. So I believe that if it's the medicine itself, it's definitely in your mind. But I think we are perhaps not able to see everything that's going on. Like the example with the San Pedro and the different frequencies, I think there's a lot 
more going on than what we, our perception, acknowledge. And I think psychedelics enables you to see some of these things going on. So that being frequencies, energies, audio waves, it changes the frequency or it tunes you in a different way. So you are able to receive those messages. But how do you measure that entirely? Because it boils back to the question, is our mind basically the TV or the antenna? And to but answer... Can it be both? No, because it means if the TV is broken, that's it. Or... If the TV is broken, the signal is still there. Yeah. So it's uh, it's not over after the physical body deteriorated. Yeah. I do believe that we're going into a different dimension because especially when uh, you mentioned DMT before, Henrik, mm. and also to explain the difference, ayahuasca is also the active ingredient uh, is DMT, but there are other ways to consume DMT and there are different forms of DMT. And there is also the possibility of smoking or vaporizing it, which uh, results in extremely potent, short, condensed experience that in the foreign, in the case of an NDMT or Freebase, would be a max of five minutes usually. And the things that I have seen there are crazier than I could have ever imagined. Mm. And that is one argument why I believe it's not purely coming from our mind, because our mind draws from past experiences and from things that we have seen, actually. I have always in my life believed it when I see it. Very scientific. There's nothing between heaven on earth unless you can measure it. And that was how I was brought up. So no bullshit kind of guy. And also being in the army many years. And then psychedelics came along and all of a sudden I see it. I didn't believe it, but now I see it. So you see it or you feel it? Well, feeling it, for, like, that's the thing. But like you might think it because I didn't think it. Right? It was, I was feeling it and I was actually, for the first time, also with visual, seeing that and thought, okay, that, that can't be possible, right? So that actually happened inside my brain. It happened inside my brain. I had this different perspective. I did see that snake. I did, you know, all these things that I thought that was not possible, was possible, right? And that fundamentally changes your perspective because if all of a sudden that is possible, then what about all the other things I thought, oh, that doesn't exist? And that's maybe the probabilitarian... Possibilitarian. Possibilitarian, <laughs> not probable, possible. It says that everything is possible because we might not know. And that's where the logical mind and then maybe the spiritual mind or battles. But that was definitely a very significant change and also very humbling. And then you realize you don't know. And there's so much you don't know. Like, again, complete anti-ego, right? Because ego thinks it knows everything. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, I don't know shit. And that also, like shoot you down a different trajectory in, in life right but it's also a freeing experience it's a very freeing experience because and that comes back to the possibilitarianism which i included into my belief system because exactly of the reasons that you said my first psychedelic experience were just shattering the belief systems yeah. i had and it showed me that there is way more than i could have even imagined yeah and since then, I said I'm possibilitarian because uh, when people tell me something that they really believe in, 
I will say, yeah, it's possible. Yeah, you've seen an alien yesterday. It's absolutely possible. Some things are less probable than others. But for me, everything is possible. And it really relieved me of fighting for my belief system or defending my belief system. If I Sometimes we feel attacked if we have our beliefs and someone comes mm. with different point of views and then we're trying to defend that belief system. Mm. And I stopped doing that. And that was and, very freeing. And that's definitely a benefit that you are not fighting the universe, right? Because the universe has its own path and doesn't give a shit about you. Many times our own dissatisfaction with life, our own suffering, oppression is the world not living up to your expectations or I want a different stupid universe. You, I don't like the order of the way you are making things happen to me. And then I'm making myself sad about that. Like how it took 13 billion years to create this, but I just don't like it. I have, I have a, a big <laughs> and philosophical and, and the psychedelics helps you. That's the benefit, right? Because it says, hey, it's everything is actually happening exactly the way it's supposed to happen. And everything is perfect as it is. And that's also the fundamental game changer here because as an entrepreneur you want to build everything no i'm gonna push this through and really driving you and how can that be aligned with a worldview where you're saying everything is perfect as is and those two just doesn't go hand in hand right so you can say one maybe as a motivator and a driver and if you continue that path you end up as donald trump right <laughs> and the other one and i'm not sure he's very happy or maybe he is that's then a condition of some sorts but then the other path of living is, of course, to surrender, right? And that's also very much a Buddhist principle, right? That you surrender to the universe and you don't suffer in that way. You're not fighting it. But the psychedelics definitely accelerate that realization and that process. And then I think you come back to your question, is are we an antenna or are we actually manifesting it in our own head? To me, it doesn't really matter either or because the result should be somewhat the same, right? That you are achieving these benefits from these experiences. And that is something that has a permanent effect or permanent change, right? And that's the beauty of it, whereas so many other things do not have a permanent effect. And then it doesn't matter if we're then either making it up in our own head, because if you can, it sounds like in your case, you actually became friends with death. In a way, so you get death business now. You're, you're, that's my new company. Like, you're, that's, that you, you became familiar with death, and you say, okay, if I only have three months left, and enjoy my last three months or not. You came to terms with death, and God knows how many people fear death consciously or subconsciously, right? I thought I didn't fear death, right? I go into my first ayahuasca retreat or a ceremony. I thought I don't fear anything, right? And then all of a sudden, when you're about to lose your life, maybe I actually do fear death. <laughs> so you realize, shit, there's a lot of things that's actually connected to the fear of death. It can be fear of abandonment, right? It can be fear of living up to people's expectations. It can be fear of living up to your own expectations. There's so much fear that you actually need to address and letting go of that. all that fear is, again, extremely... Uh, extreme relief. I find it a little bit with psychedelics sometimes. Ayahuasca, which is, I think it shows you a great movie about your potential. And I think that's amazing. And that we are all one and we are part of everything and we're all brothers and everything, all this beautiful love. But then if you come out of it and you don't act, people say the ceremony starts when you actually leave. And I think a lot of people from what I see and each one is free to do whatever, but even for me was, why are you coming? You are taught some lessons. Why are you going back again to school if you haven't applied the lessons you learned? And I think a lot of people just enjoy, and it has probably happened to all of us, seeing how great we are and how amazing love is and everything, and then 
we come to the outside world the first two days we talk about it and it's so great but then we start doing the same things over and over again because it requires a self-discipline it requires making an effort so one of the things that often i'm i try to be very careful is learning the lessons and acting on the lessons yeah. and just not going i think you have the risk of going there and it's a very ego, spiritual ego that we were talking about. It's, oh, I'm so great, I'm part, I'm so spiritual, everything. And then I come back and I do the same shit I was mm. doing before. So you know, often one ego death can then lead to the rise of a spiritual ego. And then you're on a quest to be more spiritual than other people are spiritual. Being spiritual became a competition. My and now people have to be more spiritual and, and than other people and you have to use more buzzwords and you have to do even more marketing on how sacred everything can be and how holy you can become. And my shaman is better than yours. And my shaman yeah. is better than your shaman. And, and that whole I'm a notion, healer. My healer is better than yeah. the other healer. And that yeah. whole notion of spirituality becoming a competition is just a conundrum in itself because like, the more I seek enlightenment, the less enlightened I become. So how can I be chasing something when in definition I will just be moving further, further away from it? So that just shows that it's not really, maybe it's a spiritual eagle, but you're definitely going back to your own ways. You're going back to your own habits, your own process of, oh, I need to be better at someone else. If I can defend Buddha a little bit. But <laughs> <laughs> maybe you can explain, because in, even in Vipassana, it's like you have to do all these things to get the enlightenment so you can have no attachment. I was like, but aren't you attached to getting enlightened? Aren't you willing to actually give up all your day-to-day -day life, whatever it is, to sit here for 12 hours? I still have a contraction two <laughs> weeks later. To Aren't you attached to being enlightened? So... It's well, that's accept. why you need to kill the Buddha, right? That's See? the beauty. I about picked up a fight. He wants to kill. Him. No, that's but, but that's <laughs> the beauty. That's the beauty about Buddhism. It's it's not a religion, right? And one of the fundamental difference between Buddhism and the rest of the religions are that once you become enlightened, right, you need to unlearn Buddhism, right? Exactly. Because or else you will be longing Buddhism. You'll be always like seeking towards being more enlightened and you'll become attached to Buddhism. And when you finally become enlightened, you have to forget everything you just learned. Imagine Christianity saying that or... You need to master a practice and then drop it. Yeah. Because otherwise you get stuck in the practice. Yeah. And the thing about surrender is... Surrender to the present moment. Don't fight what is right now. Mm. But it also does not mean don't work to change if you are not in a good place. Don't but, stay but, there. But, but then you are in a good place because if yeah. you accept and everything is perfect the way it is, then you are in a good place. No, no. that's why you don't see a lot of suffering clothed monks on, in government or being entrepreneurs or like changing the world, right? Because they have chosen a path of surrender. They probably let go of their ego a long time ago. But for sure, and you balance both, right? Then you could achieve great things while still surrendering to the universe. But yeah, it is very difficult. Like, and you can argue that even anyone doing an effort to do something or change something becomes imbalanced to the way of the world or Earth mm -hmm. and the balance because you're starting to consume or change or the stuff that maybe shouldn't have been changed but just of nature do its own thing so that might be the human disease or experience that we have to learn the hard way and maybe that's why we eventually will or maybe cease not. to exist i think or maybe not i i honestly don't believe that for me has been very clear it's i honestly don't believe that if there's enlightenment the way we speak about it and getting rid of all the sankaras and everything 
I do not believe that you're going to get to enlightenment better or faster if you're actually sitting meditating 12 hours a day. I do believe that if you are a genuinely good person with mm. contact with self-love, acting out in a loving way, and with your own mistake, I don't believe God. Look at the place where we are. I don't believe God created all this beauty for us to go and sit in a room and meditate for 12 hours and that's going to take us somewhere. No, but, but it's okay, just my that, perspective. I understand that. I don't, so, that even, yeah. so Vipassana is like 10 days, yeah. 12 hours. Uh, extreme, like you spend the first three days just quieting your mind before you even start learning the technique of meditation or Vipassana mm -hmm. technique because it takes three days for the mind to calm down because we're so much stimulated by everything all the time phone tv people work we're all the time on right and that takes three days just to get to a point where we're actually the mind is able to learn something and then afterwards you have seven days where you then practice it they don't tell you that you have to go out and meditate for 10 days or 10 hours every day they say meditate twice a day but one hour which is also a lot but, but they do say but then you have less chances yeah then the monks of being enlightened but I, I don't think they necessarily sell you enlightenment I think yeah. what they tell you is that with this technique you can stay at an equanimous mind right meaning that you anything can happen to you without you having an emotional reaction to it because it's the emotional reaction that brings you to a state of suffering and no one wants to be in a state of suffering so it's a technique that you can apply twice a day or once a day but and then you are much more likely to live a more balanced life right without reacting out on wife kids business partners what have you that create suffering so I think the technique actually works. Then it's the self-discipline of practicing it and continuing to do so that's more difficult. But for sure, I felt the difference after coming out of 10 days that this was a tool in the toolbox that I could pull up and use to bring me back to my balanced state when there was too much noise or something that was happening that I was you know, stuck in a moment I couldn't get out of, right? Because so many times in general also, Looking back, how many times when we've been in emotional turmoil and probably hurt people and afterwards we feel ashamed of our behavior. In 99% of the cases, when we look back at it, we always think, like, why did I react so drastically? Because it didn't really matter in the end. And also the universe has a way of sorting out everything for you anyways. Just have to trust it. But you always look back and think, why did I react so drastically? Because it really wasn't necessary at all, right? So I think that is a tool where you can then, in the moment, perhaps stay calm. Easier said than done. I'm still working on it. Yeah, I think it's a great tool. Like, I think it's a great tool. Simon recommended it to me. The but break, I have to say, no, I have to say that it has been two weeks. I do fully agree. And I think mm. like meditate, I've been meditating for a long time and I think it's an amazing tool. And I think the process, even body-wise, is amazing. Like I did yeah. blood work before and after. Mm. The results were cleansing both of mind and body. Yeah. Tough, like you said, but uh, but definitely of uh, of a lot of value. And I think the world is better off with with more people doing vipassana. Oh, for sure. Because the uh, the positive message there yeah. is, even though I don't agree with the whole thing, but you take whatever. But it, like the it's an interesting topic: vipassana versus psychedelics. And I think the two are different from each other because I believe both can be tools, but vipassana is more a practice of life. 
whereas they can also be practiced throughout life. But I see them more as shock to the system that permanently makes a change in your mind, in your perception of yourself, of the world, of life. That doesn't necessarily happen with Vipassana. That's more how can I be better at life, not better at life, how can I in suffering because that was what buddha wanted to address right psychedelics has more of a maybe a spiritual healing or a spiritual shock sometimes people just do that one ceremony and that was it but not for me i saw it i had that experience that was it other people then had to be visited every five years three years every week who knows they find a way they integrate it into their lives but i think it's two different things they both have great benefits if you have the calling then i recommend it it may or may not work for you but it definitely worked for me something to explore if you have that interest i think you get different things out of it i think so because you mentioned that at the beginning for me oh you went for ayahuasca and you went like straight in a rocket to the moon i think ayahuasca takes you to the sun in a rocket and vipassana probably takes you to the moon but you have to climb it like a ladder rope, a mm. rope ladder, just with your hands and no, not even the feet. So you have to do all the work. For me, they are ways of connecting with yourself, getting to know yourself, that self-love. I think by doing the path yourself, you learn how to get there more. Now, I think, for instance, as a first experience, and people sometimes are like, oh, it's too hard and it's too harsh. Maybe you should go do the shock thing because we can basically lie to ourselves that we are great. Like my first experience, I told you like, oh, I have have nothing. I have no trauma. My life is great. You can bullshit yourself really easily. And by getting that shock, it's like what Simon was saying uh, before, I saw a reality that felt more real than reality. And that I think makes you change. It's okay. Now my mind cannot really justify this enough for me to get out of it. So I really like that shock effect, especially if you're very closed, but the medicine works, that you get there. And mm -hmm. then, okay, that opens your field of vision and then you start acting on the changes. That's, I think, for me, was one of the key things and one of the things I really like about it is because it just takes you there. There's no way that that experience doesn't impact you or that you can easily justify with your mind. And there is also one thing I wanted to add to your question regarding the mind. I think it's already 20 years old, the DMT, the spirit molecule, which is, from what I know, the only long-term study in a hospital with doctors with DMT and the doctor wrote a book afterwards and that book was also made to a documentary which I would recommend to people that are I interested it's on YouTube actually it's on YouTube yeah yeah, yeah the documentary is on YouTube and it's just called DMT the spirit molecule yes yeah. and the title is interesting because the reason why he named it the spirit molecule is because they had people from different cultures different age groups different social hierarchies mm. it was quite a long study and and they've all experienced the same. It doesn't matter if they were from Asia or from the US. It didn't matter where they grew up. It didn't matter how old they are. They all had the same or a similar experience. And they said, I was talking to God or I was with a spirit. That's why it depends on your belief system about God. And that's the reason why he called it the spirit molecule. Mm. But even on those DMT experiences, you cannot possibly make these things up Yes. So, like, am I manifesting my own fears, beliefs, childhood dreams? No, I'm not, because I've never seen this leprechaun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Before, so, you're like, how is this possible? And or, or you go into some 
realm where you all of a sudden meet these spirits or, or entities that you had no idea existed and maybe they don't even want you to visit them and you get kicked out again. So how can that be some form of Freudian manifestation of fear? I just don't see that connection. And then the fact that many people then explain the same experiences with entities and even people visiting each other in those, like independently of each other, visiting each other's universes or entities, not having talked about it before, but then realizing it after. It's quite peculiar. Crazy things have mm -hmm. happened, yeah. And But also, we one thing that's important to mention from my side, because we talk about our positive experiences and the life-changing experiences, but I see psychedelics similar as what you said about Vipassana. It's a tool in the toolbox, and it is not for everyone. I've seen people react very badly to psychedelics, and I think it's a path that is open to some, but not to everyone. But you also know why they're reacting badly to psychedelics, right? Even though I don't want to be a judge upon that, but most people that are having bad trips, and they call it bad trips, that in itself is wrong because there is no bad trip. There's like tough, difficult trips, but there's no bad trips because every trip has something to teach you, something you can learn from. And the whole exercise is to surrender to that, right? But if you're fighting it, it's going to be really bad, right? And you're going to feel it's very bad. But that in itself is a practice. That in itself is an experience that you then have to go through that to give up, right? Or to let go. So there is no bad trip. There's tough and difficult trips. And the people who are coming back and say, oh, I hated that. That's not for me. It's like, it took me 10 months to get back to myself and all that. Yes, I believe that. However, you never got to the point where you actually were able to let go, where you actually said, okay, goodbye, Simon, goodbye, Henrik. That was it. Life is over. And maybe it's not like that death experience. It can be other form of letting go, but actually getting to that point where you are completely surrendering to whatever you're experiencing. And I think if you get had that breakthrough, then you will also come to the other side. The reward will be much higher and you will start to realize, oh, maybe psychedelics is actually something that I can use or that I can practice. I can figure out what works for me and integrate it in my life. Uh, it can also be used just at one time, but if you leave the psychedelic world, you know, many who've done that had a horrible experience and said never trying that again then they are also not giving it a chance and if you do like again I also know people who've done 10 ayahuasca segments still don't feel anything oh right? even after 100 yeah. after 100 they still don't feel anything it's <laughs> maybe how you do it maybe it's the quantity maybe it's the medicine maybe it's what you eat there's many different things right you also have to diet if you do it right that rocket will hit you and you will be taken on this ride and then I just cannot imagine people saying oh it didn't work or It was horrible. Uh, I didn't get anything out of it because so many people had great experiences. But yeah, maybe just for some people, it, it doesn't work. For example, was it Ram Das and his teacher who got what was equivalent of yeah, Ram Das, right? One one thousand two hundred yeah, micrograms. Okay. Yeah, so seven eight drops, and then he couldn't feel a thing because he's always in that. He state. was always in that space. So psychedelics yeah. for sure wouldn't work for him because he was just. But he doesn't need. But he's already there. Yeah. he's already there. But that's right? the thing. But I think there are two things. Uh, one is in terms of the period. I've never been like a very regular user, so it has been for me like every I don't know certain time or I feel like I'm going to something and fun enough most recently I haven't felt that is as much my path so I do think as well that they are a shortcut to get to that place yeah. and my goal has been from the beginning that I felt that love is mm. how I want that in my everyday life yeah. 
without substances. How can I leave that place oh. where I feel connected? I feel this love without substances. So I think as you go through, also it's interesting. Like for me, it's all, I don't know if you remember like Obelix and Asterix and that he just took a drop because he fell on a pan when he yeah. was a baby. Yeah. I feel a little bit like if I go to a ceremony, it's literally I take like nothing. People will go like on three cups. I have a quarter of a cup, 15 minutes into it, I'm there. But the message has been as well. Yeah. Dude, oh. what, why are you coming? If you look at the shamans and the yeah. plant medicine people themselves, they usually drink very little because they don't only need to sniff it to actually yeah. shock back into that energy. And for me, I don't think it's to do yeah. with the quantity necessarily. And it has been a period that I would say that it has been calling me much less. Yeah, but for, I think also yeah. it's a little bit diminishing returns uh, in a way. And Simon and I actually had that talk also coming back from Peru last time because we again maybe had very high expectations because we've had so big rewards come mm -hmm. from going to Peru and this time perhaps it was not as profound as the first times and then I said it's very difficult to wake up twice so I think it can maybe grant you access back into that energy again and remind you of that bright light that I was mentioning or that love for everyone and everything and move you from your head into your heart but I think that very impactful shock to the system can perhaps only happen once and then after that you're maybe seeing it more as a refresher course <laughs> yeah. where you then use it when you need it like also Ram Das, like he tried to be in that space and tried to constantly do acid every day but he always came back to himself so in that sense it is a little bit escapism right? that you're trying to escape something but he actually said I never wanted to escape anything because I was fine as this but I wanted to live in that space of love and be in my heart and I think for him also later in life maybe the psychedelics became less the meditation or those techniques became more yeah he stopped it he stopped it at one point so he did it very intensely for nearly a decade of his life but I think that's how it is with most psychonauts George Harrison from the Beatles there's this great documentary I think it's All Songs Must Pass which was the name of Everything Must Pass of his quadruple album when he left the Beatles with all the songs yeah. that have been rejected there's this great documentary and he says no I started traveling and I started doing like all these psychedelic trips the only thing is that I was here then I was going there but there was always the same as well so I decided to come back here <laughs> I really like the, the example of you go through life and you get dirty following the mud so you have these big blocks of mud mm. dry mud as you go to the shower the first time it's just like these big blocks after like taking five showers, mm -hmm. hey, you're maybe taking dirt from under your nails. That mm -hmm. this doesn't mean, and I really like the Buddhist will of life, which is, hey, you don't become a saint or you don't become enlightened. You go up, but if you screw up again, you're mm -hmm. back in the will of life. So then maybe you yeah. fall again, maybe you no, get but, but dirty then, again. But yeah. that's exactly, then you get dirty again, right? Because life happens. Yeah. So then you will have sorrow, loss, crisis, a lot of stuff in your life will happen and maybe you will not be able to process that or it's challenging or inner voice taking over. God knows what's happened. And here's where I think psychedelics can be tools to then stop up and say, okay, let me step aside myself for a moment, see things from a different perspective and then coming back and saying, okay, I know now what I need to do. So it's more targeted use of psychedelics to certain periods of your life or situations in your life and then you can use it to gain better perspective so i think once you become more familiar 
familiar with psychedelics and you integrate them in your life, then that's what you're using them for. You're not necessarily chasing the highs. And I would also say, like my, my plant medicine guy in Peru always said, if you want visuals and to be entertained, then go to the movies. Like, don't, like don't come here because here you need to work on your intentions and, and stuff that probably is not serving you anymore, right? It's an extreme sport. I think all this self-help and I've tried as well, I don't know, many things. I think they're all tools. And I think when you need them, you can go to them. Everything, even alcohol, whatever you, it's the right for you that moment. Meditation, whatever is the right thing for you in that moment. What I usually disagree is when it becomes a lifestyle and it becomes an extreme sport. So mm. before I used to jump of planes to get the adrenaline rush or go surfing big waves or just do all this crazy stuff outside. And then I'm getting that adrenaline rush from going inside and creating extreme. So I do think it's a tool like others more. For some people, it might be a lifestyle. I like to see it a little bit as a tool from the kit that you're going to use when needed. And I think if we take that approach on society, and I think MAPS is trying to do that a little bit on like several medical applications, it's very beneficial for society. And that's when it's well thought out. The problem, I believe, is the pendulum swing. People go from, this is terrible, this is a drug, to all the problems in the world are going to be solved and this is like the magic bullet. I think it's a great tool, not the magic bullet. You, we're talking about tough trips or I think, for instance, they're extremely horrible, but extremely interesting because they show you the limits or the lack of limits of your mind and how a normal situation can look absolutely terrible. Mm. And I think if you bring that knowledge to your everyday life and when you're getting in paranoia because you're worried about what's going to happen, like I spent 50% of my life thinking about things that never happened or worrying about things and you go, okay, no, my mind can take me to really crazy places so I can get back to my center because I know it's tricking me. And I think for things like depression, for things like anxiety and everything, those bad trips can actually make you understand your mind a little better. And okay, let me come back to the center and deal with this without mm. any substances or anything. I totally agree with depression, which is an epidemic, maybe the biggest epidemic in our lives. And depression in itself, you can say like, why are you depressed? Most people don't have the power to say why I'm depressed. I am just depressed, right? But in theory, you can change your mind, right? And you can say, okay, I don't want to be depressed. I want to be happy. I want to see the beauty in everything. So you don't have to be depressed, but people are completely powerless to it. And then the traditional practice today is, oh, we're just going to sedate your mind right and give you antidepressants so then you can't feel anymore then you, you can't be happy you can't be very sad you're just like numb right and that's the best we can do for you and Delix has never really been considered an alternative here but here you actually I believe that you can go in and give that fundamental shock to the system that enables you to actually change that perception and saying okay I'm just depressed to actually go back into that love again and maybe this is a time where we have to talk about self-love because often depression is is also rooted in lack of self-love mm -hmm. right? and if you don't love yourself then you can't love anything in your life right because everything is just bad so if psychedelics can teach you or show you the love for yourself or you can regain the love for yourself and from that you can start expanding and that's also actually vipassana principle right from that love you can then expand that love for your family wife kids husband dog nature and then you start to grow but you can never 
do it reversed. You can never love everything and not love yourself. I don't think that's really possible. And I think that's maybe what, yeah, psychedelics is so strong. I think on the last retreat that Simon and I went to Peru, that was a big message for me. And I recall on the first ceremony after years of doing, I think it was two years since I did it last, also because of COVID, everything was closed down and a lot happened in that period. So it became very cynical, like the world was changing and that had an impact. And therefore going back to the jungle, drinking ayahuasca and then connecting again to that self-love but on that first ceremony i recall just thinking in my head like oh having so much hate for myself or self-hate and the moment it popped up my the the word hate popped up my head i immediately turned around and i vomited a minute straight right because all this was coming out that i've been doing in the last two three years and it was just resentment towards myself right and if you resent yourself then there's no self-love and it's that resentment that's actually causing depression oh i hate myself oh i don't like this about myself oh i don't like my body or this and that and this and that makes you depressed right but you flip it around and you start loving yourself so oh, i love all these things about myself i'm actually a great person right i'm actually really good at this and that you can see you change your mindset it's a completely different game and from that you can then start to expand right so i think psychedelics could but then again you're not allowed to take psychedelics at all if you are on antidepressants that can be really dangerous so you definitely have to wear off those before you even consider or ketamine but ketamine can also somewhat be considered psychedelic perhaps as it can have strong visuals and out-of-body experience even though it's a completely different drug but used today throughout most of us and now also europe ketamine clinics yeah to treat depression right and, and the horses and i don't know if they actually it's, it's a horse horse trained laser by originally but i'm not sure that the ketamine you get today in little ampules you need to inject in your muscle i think that might be different than what they gave horses i think it's the same actually <laughs> i think it's the well, same. but it's and it's yeah. also still given to know. humans so it's in basically every ambulance they have yeah. ketamine also in there yeah you have in the us is becoming illegalized actually yeah no, it is already they have ketamine clinics where you can go and under supervision basically go into a k-hole mm. and the benefits are incredible and the same goes for other psychedelics where i'm just very happy that there is finally the research is very active again after being on hold since the 70s basically if any scientist touched that topic before or in the recent years it was basically they were burning their career and their name on it but i'm very happy to see that there is a lot of research going on and especially into the in the direction of depression ptsd where it has incredible results especially considering no one is going to think okay we should sue the supermarket or absolute vodka people will say okay he was an idiot but we're not blaming other instances definitely you should inform yourself and i would recommend that to anyone because you are playing with your mind, right? You should inform, you should have the knowledge, you should make sure that the quality is proper and all those things are possible. But I believe in a certain self-responsibility because it's always the others, right? It's not ourselves. People are so dumb and stupid, they will not know what to do with it. They are not responsible with it. So we need to tell them and we need to regulate. And I have an issue with that. I think that the example you give of the alcohol is great because in the end, like it ruins so many families. I think where it's, if you go, you drink three bottles of vodka and you kill yourself, it's one thing. 
I think the different things are, okay, what's the cost to society? Am I going to have to pay in a very practical way for taking this person through rehab and so on as a society? So, okay, you're actually on an economical way. You're coming to get in my pocket because of your irresponsibility. Then the other thing, I'm not worried. If you actually kill yourself, the problem is solved immediately. Of course, this is very brutal in this way. But if you get on the car and you kill someone else, or if you go home and basically you abuse your daughter or whatever you you do and we know that alcohol is a great example of a drug that just got a good reputation because there's such a large business and historically it was such a big thing but it's exactly one of those cases that they impact on society when it's used without any control exactly but it should be available i think we have to have some rules in place but you have that issue especially with alcohol and we know that there is domestic violence in general, homicides, the numbers are insane. It's committed under alcohol. But people, if they take mushrooms, I don't know a single case where someone robs a bank on mushrooms. You have other things to do, but different substances bring different results. And alcohol is actually the one that is the most costly. Nicotine as well. But with nicotine, we have already started that If you are a smoker, you will have higher costs for your social security or higher uh, insurance costs, which is a way to deal with it. But alcohol is the most costly substance for society. And it is legal. But it might also just be the way of society and the lack of flexibility that we have, that once we have set our mind on a certain way of doing things, it almost solidifies over time. And then it becomes extremely difficult to change that because then you also have all these other forces that are pushing that agenda for alcohol, tobacco. Yeah, you look at psychedelics, 50 years since it was made illegal and even Even back then, there was so much evidence showing the benefits and little evidence showing the downsides, right? And that was blown out of proportion because of political reasons, as you mentioned. But then 50 years later, because the society has been conditioned in this way to think it is bad, then we just can't change our mind or it takes a long time for society to change its mind. And not before society has changed its mind and thereby also media that stops publishing stories about, oh, one person died of taking a pill in uh, some club and Let's get front side headline when a thousand people died of alcohol at the same time, right? There's no comparison, no perspective whatsoever. It's just whatever headline sells. But as long as the media thinks that and the public thinks that, you'll see no politician taking any form of action to then change the law because that would just be political suicide when the mass opinion is that, oh, it's still dangerous. How do we get out of this loop of insanity, right? Where science is basically, or the benefits, because they're backed up, they are no longer ignored and you're actually starting to change it. And I think it's a generational shift, right? The people who are making those decisions, both in parliament or growing up is the people who are sitting in the DEA or sitting in the FDA and proving all that, they will then eventually be retiring. And then new people coming in will then say, okay, actually what you all were thinking was wrong, right? And there's evidence to show that it's actually different. And then it'll slowly start to change. 50 years, right? And it might take another 10, 20, 30 years before it has actually been completely 
completely up to oneself to decide if you want to put this in your body. But it's hypocrite. I think there, I think it's an issue with change management. Let's be honest. This is widely available everywhere for whoever wants to take it. And that's like, right now, I think people are just covering their face with their hands and like picking and it's like, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing it. Come on. This is widely available. You can buy it on the internet. It's like everyone can get it. If you look at it, it's like just Google out to go on the dark web. And But I think there's a matter of adoption here. So I think it's hypocrite even from the government. It's either legalize it or forbid it. And if you're going to forbid, forbid alcohol and everything on the way, take whatever perspective you want, but just be consistent, which I think people are not. Then it's going to be more on the conservative side. It's your choice or you want to be more liberal, but do everything at once and understand alcohol as well. The other thing is that change takes time. Or something happens yes. that then pushes you. Right? For example, Portugal. Look at Portugal. They had a huge problem, a little bit like Switzerland, with opioids. Yeah. Right. And Portugal, Switzerland said, okay, this war that we're fighting against drugs, in this case opiates, we're losing. What can we do? Because what we've been doing is not working. And they then said, okay, then maybe let's decrease drugs so that we're not making people who are addicted into criminals, but instead we're seeing them as patients and people who are sick who need to be helped rather than put into jail, right? And that, I think, was a huge change, right? Because I have no idea. That's the funny thing. It was done in this country. It's been mentioned and mentioned to me over and over again. Mm. And it wasn't communicated. And if you actually go to most people from our generation above, either they don't know about it, They've heard actually from foreign sources, which is funny, or have this very traditional perspective. So even in Portugal, that is given as like a benchmark as, and as an example. And from the statistics I've seen, it has worked. As a Portuguese, I was never informed about it, which I find really funny. I don't know who did it, how they did it. But it was brilliant. Uh, and it happened 13 years ago, I think, because I of the opioid crisis. I think so. But it's honestly, it, but like I do keep updated and it was never like a big thing or a massive discussion. And even with that evidence... Right. With evidence from Portugal, more decades. With states in America where weed has been legal for years now, right? And the arguments were always, oh, we made weed legal, then consumption will go up. And especially with the young people. Or the crime rate will crime go up. Will, that did not happen. Actually, I think in Colorado, like consumption among people below 18 fell yeah. after it was legalized. Because then it was not so interesting anymore. And it's, you can get it anywhere. So... It's just like all these documentation for why psychedelics, weed, should still be illegal or not up to the individual if they want to take it or not. It's just ignored because they have already made up their mind. There's a belief system that just don't change because these are the people who actually need psychedelics the most. <laughs> we could give them that and then they'll change the law immediately. But as long as they're in power, you're How never going to have any change. How many people you had against gay rights? Yeah. How many people that had abortions mm. are against abortions? And this happens. But I do think change is happening. This wouldn't have happened, like this conversation we are having, probably wouldn't have happened five years ago. No. Now it's... And I would also argue that if psychedelics didn't work, if ketamine didn't help on depression, if MDMA-assisted therapy didn't help on trauma, if all these things wouldn't see such a push for legalization, you wouldn't see people again and again 
bringing this up and saying, hey, this actually works. So I think there's also natural selection of these. This would have died out a long time ago if people were actually not, you know, feeling anything or getting any benefits from it. So that also proves that this is the direction it's going and people can't just, or government can't just ignore it. It's a double-edged sword because pharma industry is jumping on it now and absurd things are happening like pharma companies trying to patent psilocybin, which is a plant. Natural. It's a natural, so it's not a plant, but it's natural. So it is becoming a big business. I'm also curious where that is going to lead. I'm very happy. They'll about probably put something in it that makes you addicted. Right? <laughs> or else it'll be a horrible business, right? Like you you, you're giving people business. something that by nature you can't be addicted to. doesn't work in America. Subscription. And Subscription, then and yeah. you jump into yeah. the next high and the next the high. Next the high, next oh, high. Yeah. But it takes time. I, I don't know. I think society, like five years ago, wouldn't be having this conversation. No, maybe uh, like now we have Tim Ferriss speaking all the time about it. Then you have John Hopkins and NYU and Stanford and all these well-renowned traditional institutions doing research on it. But it does take time. But I think and then you have like every new technology, every new thing. You have like the early adopters that are the rebels that try to experiment and they make a mistake. They're a little bit the scouts of the group that then they make the mistakes. They come back, they find the path. And then you have like everyone until like the laggards or the last ones, they follow and they eventually get convinced by it. If I look at history and uh, if we look at wheat or marijuana, if you look at the history of why it was made illegal, it was actually the cotton industry who was afraid that they are losing their business because hemp was also used as a cotton replacement. So they lobbied so hard, made marijuana illegal. And if you look at MDMA, MDMA was completely legal. It was used in therapy already, I think, until the early 80s and it slipped into a bill about the criminalization. It was added there last minute and I have great admiration for the work that MAPS is doing but MDMA was very useful before and we know about the benefits of it especially in therapy and MAPS is now working since more than 20 years I think in order to bring it back and to legalize. 20 years I think even longer. Yeah. started in this like Rick Doblin the founder started in like the 80s uh, so far years ago. Which is, to me, an insanity. Or DMT is still a Schedule 1 drug in the US. No health benefits. And Exactly. And it means it forbids from research yeah. because there are no health benefits yeah. to it. Completely Even though we have DMT in our brain. and But there are people working on that since many years. And just to say, oh, it takes time, we'll see. How many people are actually doing that? Because but the proof that psychedelics are beneficial or can be beneficial and are not harmful either physically or for society, that proof has been brought over and over. By how many people? Because the Proof is there. Yeah, but if you... If no, well, because... so also, like, they also prevented scientists from studying it because exactly. that was also it illegal. Was, that right? is, that, that yeah. partly or probably also was the reason why it's taken so long. But that's what MAPS now slowly have been able to then breakthrough and so they can go through phase one, it. phase two, phase three studies and double blinds and all that you know stuff so they can actually prove this has benefit and there is at least a ground for more research. It's stage three already, no? Phase three. three. But then it just got rejected. Already. It was rejected. It was just recently rejected yeah. by the FDA, the FDA I think. Going to, I think, other deeper issues. Deeper issues. It's like, an, I live in Mexico and everything that happens in Mexico because the drugs that go through to the U.S. that is a consumption market. And then 
Mexico is the country that has all the issues with the drugs and the traffic and the violence and everything. This brings a lot of questions. And now it comes uh, all of a sudden a political discussion, but we also in the net many times we are still fighting this war against drugs and it's still not working. And if you have done the same thing for 40 years and you're still not getting any results, quite the contrary, what is then keeping you in doing the same thing again and again? So there must be some underlying powers that, for example, big farmer make sure that no wheat has to stay illegal right because we have millions of people on addictive opiates and if they just start smoking a joint every night then they actually don't need all these pills and that's going to be billions for us and it's just business And I've been in that game because I've started companies, I've shareholders, and those shareholders have expectations, and you have to deliver on those expectations. And slowly but gradually, it's like incremental also normal that if you do things over time, and all of a sudden, oh, maybe it's also normal to wear a face mask in the supermarket. Or, or two face masks mask, right? in the plane. And then over time, it just gets so distorted that you've forgotten how it actually was in the beginning. And that's perhaps where we are, that we will never have any changes when there are such big powers in place who still benefit from status quo quo and that's you can say is then where the system should prevail to the benefit of people that's not the case in the u.s but that's where i'm very disappointed of the european governments because that's really where you would see something like this then pass faster but denmark even where i'm from extremely conservative but also a lot of big farmer in denmark germany Germany now for the the first time is saying okay Weed can potentially be recreational, but also a lot of big pharma. And though, like, and also in France, and, and those countries seem to then say, okay, there's billions to be lost if we're going to change it up. And that you just can't change that overnight. You're dependent on that. But it's crazy because like, even in Colorado and other states, you've seen that in Texas, you can charge on weed and other stuff. Right. It's good, so good use afterwards for education. And once you have that money that you're getting every year from weed sale, then you will not see a politician say, oh, we're going to make it illegal again. Again, if we go back to the plant medicines, and we consider tobacco plant medicine like it is used in many cultures, quinoa or cannabis considered a plant medicine. Well, tobacco, yes, but tobacco that we have has now more than 800 chemicals. No, but I'm saying like natural tobacco, which some cultures believe it's a plant medicine, like when you're talking about a weed as a plant medicine, again, it's like, why are you self-medicating every day? Because if you're actually coming from a place of of the self-love we we're talking about and that balance. And if you go back to Buddhism, I didn't see like the Buddhist monk smoking joints. It's I think eventually you get to a place that's a tool. But I think what happens is these substances, in some cases, they become a crutch. And that's where I think you have to have a combination of both the self-work and the tool. Yeah, wonderful. But the yeah. self-responsibility. Yeah. I, mean, I, I um, see that. I see that in the terms of like substances that are addictive by nature. Because they can be could abused. be food. Yeah, right? sure. Sugar is the biggest addiction. And, and that, I agree. And, yes. and sugar probably costs more than any of the all yeah. drugs combined. Like any substance, yeah. people can get addicted to it. But the thing is, I think you can get addicted to the experience. I don't think physically or in terms of your mind, it gets you addicted. But I think you can't keep going back and going back on this kind Kind of loop of self-discovery that happens as well. But extremely low percentages compared to wheat or alcohol and, or and sugar. And I would say that pretty opiates. harmless. Obesity is a massive problem. Massive problem yeah. Alcohol is a massive problem. The only thing is, I think, again, we go back to education and with education can come self-responsibility and all these things. I fully support that the ideal is self-responsibility. If you have the same thing we're talking about, the impact on society. If you are 
are obese, but the health costs everything are for society. How do you get what is overeating? Usually it's also a mental state where you're compensating for something. Sure, but it's not only that that we put sugar into everything. Because it's addictive. Because it's addictive, exactly. And then we're back to the greed and to the business point. And what I was trying to say before is I think we should change our argumentation because the vote of risk of psychedelics, the dangers of psychedelics or the benefits, that is in. That information is in. But the argument for me is my human right to explore my mind the way I choose fit. And it is another thing that seems absurd to me that we are making mushrooms, we're making a plant illegal, magic mushrooms, but poisonous mushrooms are not illegal because the government says, okay, either watch out or you'll feel the consequences. But another mushroom that does not kill me, but that gives benefits and maybe a lot of colors and visuals, that is illegal and you go to jail for that. So there is another story behind it. So for me, it is the argument should be my human right to explore my body and my mind the way I choose fit without harming anyone else or society while doing so. So I believe that too, because I'm also a libertarian in that sense, right? That I should decide what goes into my body. But you are capable of making a qualified decision. But unfortunately, the vast majority of humans on Earth are not educated to make that judgment. Evolution will take care of that. Yeah, that you can say that's everything perfect as is and we just go. But then you probably also would end up with huge epidemics. So in that sense, when half of China was addicted to opium, then the Chinese government had to go in and kick out the Brits and make sure to stop because there was no society was on its knees. Right? So it can go to that extreme where eventually you have to have someone come in. So same as in America, 100 to 500 years later. Yeah, we haven't gone far. Huh? Same dynamics in play. But yeah, I guess we won't solve the war on drugs on this episode but we definitely share the opinion and even we could say how much the government should be involved or not I think at the end of the day yes the libertarian view is that we should all be the boss of what we put into ourselves but at least let there be qualified decision based on the data that is there and right now that isn't the case right because there is much more evidence that show that psychedelics are beneficial than there are evidence showing that they're not beneficial don't look at it from from an economic perspective, look at it from human health and world health perspective. But maybe I'm just naive because that's not how the world works. That's not humanity. I always had the issue with economics. That is, if people were rational in they behave like the curves would move like this. Yeah. It's like the first thing, it's like people are not, not rational. rational. Yeah. So it's, yeah. but and to that point, it's like what moves these things is business, lobbying and everything. That's yeah. Why so the, that's why uh, capitalism moving into psychedelics. Yes, I might be fundamentally against because they'll probably alter it in ways we don't want. However, if the end goal or end result is that more people aren't going to be introduced through marketing to psychedelics, have this experience become more conscious, maybe they will also, in the end, be able to make those assessments better themselves. I do think if we have good science coming into it, and for instance, ayahuasca hasn't been properly studied, and I was just listening to McKenna with Tim Ferriss on the podcast I think came out this week. He says there are many PhDs still that should be done around this, and a lot of it is the shaman cooks the mix in a certain way, and then how much? No, like there's no doses, there are no no proper studies, let's put it like this. Mm. There's a lot of evidence, but more practical evidence that it works than actually studies. 
I think if we can make it artificially, because there's a sustainability issue mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with everyone now going after ayahuasca and chacruna and everything, and peyote, you're depleting. Yeah. There is not enough peyote. for everyone. Yeah, like peyote. So it's, you can actually make it in laboratories. Inst or creating mm -hmm. cultivations and you're mm -hmm. not destroying the jungle and you're not destroying entire ecosystems mm -hmm. because then greed comes after this and come on, there's ayahuasca tourism all over Latin mm -hmm. America and this is becoming an industry and there has been several issues around this industry as well. So I think... But like, I just like point to the pharmaceutical company that will make this as a one-off drug that you're not going to be buying a lot, right? But you have to find the, a business the amount of, of money you would have to invest in the production, the marketing, the, all that stuff. You will never earn it back and again. You I think then you can put, I don't know, people are very creative marketing things. It's put some like, cocaine you know in it. <laughs> or some sugar. Put some sugar. Put some sugar, yeah. With the taste it has. Oh, like, yeah, sure. Yeah. But it's, I think. Mix it with the Fanta. <laughs> there you go, but or, or you make it, you know what, you can only do it. I don't know, like a lot of people are already doing therapies. And I think like in someone was telling me about that they were paying for a session of psilocybin, $1,500. Oh, you can get that in Portugal. Oh, yeah. I you don't know. In yeah. Portugal. But like with trees of E2, three ceremonies, 2,500. Yeah, there you go. Oh. But it's like, and then you get, oh, you know what? Because it's the therapist that does this. And <laughs> yeah, then it must be good. And you're going to do it in a certain place. And mm. you market at the certain point. You're not even selling the substance. You're selling no. the experience. Oh, for sure. And you're cross-selling with and I think tourism and retreats. All this will come out. But I also think that's a big problem today, actually, because a lot of people are then signing up for weekend retreats where you go straight from work to villa an hour outside the city on Friday night and then you drink the first time and then you wake up on Saturday and then you drink the second time and then uh, you send home Sunday afternoon. And that in and out process, quick fix with almost no dieta, no like intentions, no integration afterwards. And then people think that was my ayahuasca experience or that was my son seven experience or my St. Pedro experience. Like you are scratching the surface on the potential of those psychedelics if you are treating it like that. And I think there's a lot of options today for people to go on retreats, but there's some very few good ones, right? And there's a general tendency, I also believe, that for the people that are brought in from South America to Europe to do these retreats, to be the shaman, also tend to both in U.S. and Europe from my experience is not necessarily give people the experience that they could have because why jeopardize their situation because it is illegal while doing that in Europe. It's legal back in South America, but illegal here. Why jeopardize the situation if people go out and have horrible experiences and turn the shaman into the police? So I think you're just not getting very good quality from nine out of 10 retreats that you can sign up for in Europe. That's just my personal opinion. And I always recommend people to go to the source. You don't go to UK for Italian food, right? But terrible experiences with Latin America as well. It's like there are... And there's there's a lot of tourism there and there's a lot and of shit there. Yeah. I completely agree. But I think the message here is that you have to do your research mm. to find good people who you can trust and who from other people have given them a good experience. And you can see that there's a lot of thought and care into the process. It's not just an in and out experience. And just Take not because you have feathers in your hair. And just not. Yeah, exactly. And like a general rule is if the shaman calls himself shaman, don't go there. Go. <laughs> <laughs> right. Go. Don't. Then it's key. 
good looking. So beware of shamans, gurus, and self-entitled thing. Be careful on that because you might end up having an experience that is only the tip of the iceberg, and then you would walk away thinking, "Oh, that was it!" Right? When there would be a lot more benefits to be had. So always ask around in your network. I think is my recommendation, and then do the research. The more preparation and intention you can do, the more reward. This was it for the Honest Podcast. I hope you got a lot of honesty and some good advice. We may seem reliable, but I wouldn't take everything for granted. Do not so, trust us. As the Buddhists also say, make sure to trust your own experience instead of believing everyone else who tells you they know it. But do your research and find out that way. Thanks, Simon and David. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Hendrik. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, please share with friends or random people in general so they too can waste their time listening to golden nuggets of life wisdom from your host, Henrik Silmer. Join us next month for another episode of The Honest Podcast.